a quick word before our second scripture reading. Uh, Pastor Shannon Kirshner was yesterday in Washington, D.C., officiating and preaching at the funeral of the Reverend Jeff Craybill, a well-known Presbyterian minister and a good friend of Shannon's, and she had planned to fly home last night and be here with us this morning. Particularly, she was looking forward to the installation of trustees, but she was on the last flight out of D.C., and it got canceled, so uh, she's not here, and she wanted everyone to know uh, how much she wanted to be here, but that is why she is not. I thought of thinking of other stories to tell you, but I'm going to go with that. (laughs) Our second scripture reading is from the New Testament, the first letter of Peter, chapter 2, beginning in the 19th verse. If you wish to read along in the Pew Bible, it is on page 219. Listen now for God's word to us. For it is a credit to you if, being aware of God, you endure pain while suffering unjustly. If you endure when you are beaten for doing wrong, what credit is that? But if you endure when you do right and suffer for it, you have God's approval. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin. And no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was abused, he did not return abuse. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that, free from sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you were healed. For you were going astray like sheep, But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts together be acceptable and true and right and good in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. The number of people who have been forced to flee Syria in the five years since the start of that civil war uh, numbers in the millions. These are parents and grandparents and lawyers and doctors and teachers and accountants, and most of them have no stake in that conflict. Thousands died in their flight from the country. Scores more died before they could get out, and those who did get out and survived the passage were, in many cases, greeted by governments and by citizens that did not want them and would not welcome them. These people did nothing to bring this suffering upon themselves. It is simply unjust, unjust suffering. You don't have to look to the Syrian refugee crisis to see unjust suffering. You hardly have to look for it at all. It seems to be all over the place on the streets, in people's homes, in schools, in the government, on the internet, people's workplaces. People with power and resources take advantage of and abuse the vulnerable all the time. Sometimes we're on the receiving end of that equation, and God help us if we're ever on the giving end. The first readers of 1 Peter know all about unjust suffering. 
The author of that letter to them says that they are enduring pain while suffering unjustly and that they are doing right and suffering for it. There's something about these first readers of uh, 1 Peter that our reading, however delineated by verses as it is, does not tell us, but that you have probably figured out already, especially if you were reading along in your pew Bible. Our reading began with verse 19 and the declaration that there's a credit to suffering unjustly. But who's that addressed to? You back up one verse to verse 18 and you find this. Slaves... Accept the authority of your masters with all deference, not only those who are kind and gentle, but also those who are harsh. That sort of changes the calculation, doesn't it? Everything in this passage is addressed to slaves, to household slaves living in a collection of cities in modern-day Turkey. These slaves have converted to Christianity, and as a result, they are not serving the religions of the households where they work anymore. And many of them are suffering, on one hand, because they're slaves, but on the other hand, because they are Christian slaves. There are some very, very good reasons for skipping verse 18, as the Revised Common Lectionary does. Because the history of our church, particularly the American church, is pockmarked with justifications of slavery as an institution that appeal directly to 1 Peter 2.18. It strikes me how different, however, the slavery is that we find in 1 Peter than what we first think of when we hear that term. The slavery that Peter is addressing is not based on race. It's not generationally perpetuated. A person could volunteer volunteer themselves into slavery, say, to pay off a debt, and they could work themselves out of it. The slaves that Peter is addressing are Christians, and they are serving people who are not. How different is that from the monstrosity that was modern American slavery in which Christian slaveholders employed their Bibles to enslave generation upon generation upon generation of a single race of people who they convinced themselves, again using their Bibles, were not fully human. Accept the authority of your masters with all deference. What good reason could there possibly be for proclaiming that from any pulpit in 2017 or ever? So we didn't read it. But we can't hear the rest of the text without knowing that it's there. Because the first hearers of these words in 1 Peter are Christian slaves enduring unjust suffering. That's how it was. That's how it is. That's how it always has been. The world is clogged with the sludge of unjust suffering. So what are they to do about it? What is the Christian response when you encounter unjust suffering? It seems one option is just to take it, to resign ourselves to the way things are and just do our best to carry on. There's a certain sort of stoicism to that approach, I suppose, the Midwestern stiff upper lip. So many people have it worse than me. Of course, stoic as that is, that resignation easily bleeds into a kind of martyrdom that seeks out suffering for its own uh, benefit as if there is some spirituality to suffering. And there's a more cynical version of just taking unjust suffering as well. I personally find myself tempted to this version. I feel like 
if I've been wronged because I wasn't picked for something or because my candidate lost, it's very appealing to me to just say, why bother? Nothing I do makes a difference. The powerful have rigged the system against me and people like me. A straight white guy, right? Is that what the scriptures teach? Grudging acceptance of intractable injustice, pious platitudes about how much worse other people have it. No, it's not. God does not want victims of abuse and unjust suffering to just take it. We do terrible damage to people if we tell them that. Martin Luther King was right when he said that to accept passively an unjust system is to cooperate with that system. Acquiescence, he said, which is the easier way, is not the moral way. The suffering of these household slaves addressed in this very difficult passage, that suffering is evil. It is an evil, and God does not endorse it. So if passive acceptance of that injustice is not the way they should go, then fighting back surely must be, right? Many of the people who surrounded Jesus were eager for him to fight back, to take this approach. The title that they shouted everywhere he went, Messiah, that title is loaded with military significance. The people of Israel in first century Palestine live under occupation, Roman military occupation. Many of them are making the best of that situation, going along to get along, but many others are trying to fight back. Armed uprisings against the empire, invariably led by somebody claiming a messianic mandate, they're common. And some of Jesus' followers seemed really keen for him to be the leader of the next one. And as an American, I find that pretty easy to sympathize with. I I don't know about what you're listening to at your house, but the soundtrack to Hamilton's on in my house all the time, because I have an eight-year-old. And... The music, that musical, is reminding me, and I think everybody, just how much of our identity as a country is grounded in a story of armed resistance to an unjust occupation. Hamilton didn't just take it, you guys. We call this revolution, and so it is. It is a revolution, but it's also something else. It's a, it's a myth of redemptive violence. The myth of redemptive violence is the belief that retribution fixes things. As much as fireworks and the Star Spangled Banner, I think that the myth of redemptive violence holds a certain grip on our cultural consciousness. Every time the bad guy gets it at the end of the movie, every time a death row inmate is executed, every song that sings the glories of revolutionaries burrows the myth of redemptive violence violence deeper and deeper into our cultural identity. Judas believed in the myth of redemptive violence. Among Jesus' followers, he was the one that seemed to be most under the sway of this zeal to fight back, to take up arms against the empire. His betrayal of Jesus is easily understood as an attempt to force his rabbi's hand into an armed confrontation. And it nearly worked. Because when Jesus brought a gaggle of soldiers to the garden to arrest Jesus, somebody near Jesus, who John says was Peter, had a sword, and they drew their sword, and they cut the high priest slave's ear right off, and now it's on, right? No, because Jesus says, stop, put the sword away. 
Anybody who lives by the sword is also going to die by the sword. Violence is immoral, King said, commenting on Jesus' arrest, because it thrives on hatred rather than on love. It destroys community and makes brotherhood and sisterhood impossible. It leaves society in monologue rather than dialogue. Violence ends by defeating itself. It creates bitterness in its survivors and brutality in its destroyers. And he continued, a voice echoes through time, saying to every potential Peter, put up your sword. Put up your sword. One scholar even asserts that this principle of non-retaliation is, this phrase is a mouthful, an extremely early fixed catechetical tradition. In other words, the teaching has always been Christians don't hit back. What then? What is the Christian strategy for dealing with unjust suffering? The strategy is no strategy. It's a calling. To this you have been called, the ancient letter says. Think about that for a second. To this you have been called. Think about what that means for a first century slave or for oppressed or marginalized people anywhere at any time. To this you have been called. Called like Jesus saw James and John mending their nets and he called them called. Like Jesus saw Matthew sitting in the tax booth and, and called him called. Like all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to God's purpose called? Yes, yes, yes. Household slaves in first century Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Bithynia, Asia, all these cities addressed at the beginning of the letter, these slaves don't have anything. They have nothing but what their master allows them. They're slaves. And yet the author of First Peter in and authority in the church speaks quite matter-of-factly about what they do have, the calling that they have, and the freedom that they have that comes with it. Nothing in their life is free, but this, they are free to choose to follow Jesus. The gospel addresses all people as free moral agents who have the power to make their own choice, even when nothing else in their life does that. For to this you have been called, verse 21 says, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. We have been called, friends, to follow in Jesus' steps. We talk a lot about discipleship here, and this is it. This is discipleship in its most simple, most concrete, yet most challenging form. There is no violence or retaliation in any of Jesus' steps. When abused, he does not return abuse. When he suffers, he does not threaten. He does not, in the words that we say almost every Sunday when we leave here, return anyone evil for evil. And neither will we, then, if we are following in his steps. Some people might think that sounds really easy, like uh, a feel-good sort of pacifism, passive acceptance and acquiescence. It doesn't sound that way to Nadine Collier, and to the other members of the Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, who have steadfastly expressed forgiveness 
and a refusal to retaliate upon Dylan Roof, the white supremacist who shot and killed nine of their friends and fellow church members in the closing prayer of a Bible study two years ago. Collier told a confused newspaper reporter that she learned in Roof's bond hearing, the first time where she looked him in the face and said, I forgive you, she said, I learned that forgiveness isn't weak, it isn't resignation, or a duty done begrudgingly, and it is not easy. Bond, or Roof was sentenced to death in January, and at his sentencing, members of that church were still there, still expressing forgiveness, still refusing to take up the mantle of vengeance and retribution, and it boggles the mind, I think, how a person, how a community of people can summon the will to look someone in the face who's done such a thing to people they love and who would just as easily do it to you and says still that he would and can then forego the right that everybody says they have to seek vengeance and justice to the fullest extent of the law. It's, conf it's baffling, but these are church folk. One of the lawyers for the, one of the families told that same newspaper, this is in their DNA. For those of us who do not have that same faith, it's hard to imagine, but it's ingrained in them. Return no one evil for evil, an extremely early fixed catechetical tradition, and there is nothing easy about it. Following in Jesus' steps and enduring unjust suffering without retaliating depends on more than our moral will. It depends on our awareness of God, friends. Collier's exact words to Roof at his bond hearing were, if God forgives you, I forgive you. Returning no one evil for evil depends on a bone-deep trust in God who judges justly, whose ways are not our ways, and whose justice is not our justice. Miroslav Volf, who's a Croatian theologian, had a close-up view of the ethnic cleansing programs in the former Yugoslavia. He wrote a book about it called Exclusion and Embrace, where he said this about this instruction in 1 Peter, without entrusting oneself to God who will judge justly, it will hardly be possible to follow the crucified Messiah and to refuse to retaliate when abused. The certainty of God's judgment at the end of history is the presupposition for the renunciation of violence in the middle of it. The opposite of retaliation is not acquiescence, but rather the active entrusting of oneself to God who judges justly. That's what Jesus did. He entrusted himself to God at his arrest, at his trial, as soldiers mocked him, all the way to Golgotha and on the cross. And we who follow in his steps find in that trust the seeds of a revolutionary third way of reacting to unjust suffering when we encounter it. In the, the, the words of Walter Wink, that third way is neither submission nor assault, neither flight nor fight, a way that can secure your human dignity and begin to change the power equation. It is trust in God. The image that First Peter uses to demonstrate that trust in God is one of the most enduring images in all of scripture, the image of a shepherd. It, it occurs over a hundred times, perhaps, perhaps none more memorably than the one we heard earlier in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. First Peter adopts that image for us as well. 
to affirm for us that though we have strayed from Jesus' steps, we have all together now returned again and again to our shepherd, to our guardian. The you, Y-O-U in 1 Peter, is not singular, it is plural. We are part of a community, a flock. Together then, following in the steps of our shepherd, we are formed and reformed as a people who by the power of the Spirit can and do choose to follow in Jesus' steps in living for the right and the good. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.